Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. We're in a series of messages entitled, Waiting for the Messiah. We're seeking to answer a question in each of these messages, and today's question is, who will the Messiah be? To get that, please find two passages in your Bible, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 and John chapter 1. Those are the two passages. We'll start in Isaiah, then we'll get to John chapter 1. Here's the key concept this morning. Jesus shows us the Father. Jesus shows us the Father. Very soon we're going to be celebrating the most wonderful moment in human history when God the Son came in human form, the birth of the Lord Jesus as He entered the world. But we need to understand that that's not an isolated event. It is not a random moment, and that moment in time does not tell the whole story about who He is and what He came to do. It's a snapshot. And like any snapshot, it's not complete, not the full picture of the experience. I have some snapshots from some movies that I want to show you. Go ahead and show those films. Now, maybe you don't remember that film. You guys are a little young for that. But that's a snapshot from a movie. Let's go on the next one. Maybe you're more familiar with that story. A snapshot. Go ahead to the next one. I'm sure you're familiar with that one, but you're not able to tell the whole story just from that one picture. It's a moment in time. It's isolated. It doesn't give you the the complete picture, and neither does this snapshot. Let's go to the next one, the familiar picture of the nativity scene. As wonderful as it is and as glorious as it is, you would be silly to try to construct the entire story just from that one snapshot. In fact, that's not, it's not only the whole story, it's not the beginning of the story. It all involves a much bigger plan, this wonderful birth. So to get that plan in view, we're going to first begin in Isaiah chapter 7. Because way back in Isaiah chapter 7, 750 years or so prior to the event in the manger, the birth announcement is made. So read with me, chapter 7, verse 14. You follow along. It says this, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Long before there were Christmas trees, long before there were jingle bells, Before there was garland and tinsel, the Jewish prophet was able to look through, past the peaks of history, down through the corridors of time, and tell us about Christmas. 
But even that statement occurs in a setting, in a context, and one which we would do well to understand because, you see, Isaiah chapter 7 takes place in dark days in the nation of Judah when the sinful king Ahaz is on the throne and things are not looking good. To get the setting, go back to the very first verse of that same chapter. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says this, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aaron, Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. These are dark days in Jerusalem because they are under siege. War has come to Jerusalem. The ten tribes of the north that we call Israel, the ten tribes that, that didn't follow God and didn't have David's descendants on the throne, those ten tribes have banded up with what we today call Syria, that's called Aram in this passage, and together their armies are laying siege to Jerusalem. Things look bleak, and Ahaz is not up to the job. You see, Ahaz is not a wartime king, and he's not faithful to the one true God. Now, Second Kings fills in the details telling us of what actually was going on. What King Ahaz did when those armies surrounded Jerusalem is he gathered up the vessels of the temple. By that we mean the golden goblets, the golden um, bowls and silver objects and those kinds of things. He gathered them together and he shipped them off to the king of Assyria. And what he was trying to do is to hire the Assyrian army to come and help little Judah against their enemies. And so that was his plan. But what he's really doing is he's appealing to one enemy to help him against other enemies. And you know that that's not going to work out long term. And it is at this low point when, when Ahaz is following through on this idea that God sends the prophet Isaiah to speak with him. But he doesn't send Isaiah to scold him initially. He sends Isaiah to give him promise and hope, to speak words of comfort and real assurance. Because what Isaiah really says is you are not in danger if you turn to God. Your God can defeat these enemies. They are no match for him. But realize that the protection and hope that you need and that you seek comes from the Almighty, not from your human schemes. You're going to need to humble yourself, uh, Ahaz, if you're going to be delivered. Look at chapter, look at chapter uh, 7, verse 9, the very end of the verse. Isaiah is speaking and he says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, the Hebrew there is actually a play on words. It would sound something like this. If there is no belief, there will not be any relief. He comes with that assurance, that promise. So Ahaz is in a moment of testing. It is Ahaz's turn to decide what he's going to do. Will you trust in with the, what, what the prophet is saying and turn to God and rely on Him, or will you trust only your own plans and your own pride? Ahaz has to make a decision, but Ahaz dithers. He can't choose. Like I said, he's not a wartime king. He doesn't know what to do. And so Isaiah the prophet says, 
tell you what, let me help you. Let's test to see whether or not what I'm saying is right. Ahaz, God offers you a sign. Ask for a sign so that God can prove to you that He will undertake your cause. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, Ahaz, there are no limits to this. You can ask for whatever you imagine. Ask away. Ask for something great or something small, something that will prove to you that God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. But just ask. And Ahaz would not ask. Ahaz would not put God to the test in this way. He didn't want the truth that Isaiah was offering him because Isaiah, Ahaz was first and foremost a man who's going to stick to his own plans and go his own way, even in the face of the promise that God is offering. And I tell you that story to ask you this question. Is that what you're doing? Are you facing your own life and walking through your own days saying, I'm sticking to my plans, my way, according to my ideas, no matter what? Are you hearing the truth from the Scripture and saying to yourself, well, that's not the way I want it to be. I will stick to my own version of truth rather than what God says. That's exactly what Ahaz says and what he does. You see, his version of the truth does not include him being humbled before God. His version of the truth is that he works things out for himself, that he calls the shots, he determines the way that it goes. But he hides that rebellion against a pretend faith. It's in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. But God sees through that pretense. God sees right down to the heart. And Isaiah continues, and the tone changes in verse 13. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Now is the promise. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time like any, unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Isaiah outlines the plan. There is a short period of good news there. He says, listen, in the time it takes for a young girl to get married, to have a baby, and before that baby grows up to be an adult, responsible adult, the kingdoms that you fear will be no more. That's the good news. But here's the bad news. The kingdom you are depending on to deliver you will turn on you. Not only will Assyria destroy the kingdoms that are your enemies, Assyria will not be your savior. It will be your destruction as well. He will bring the king of Assyria. This is a little time of good news. Then there's bad news. 
But what Isaiah and Ahaz, definitely Ahaz, probably don't understand is that these words foretell a time of great news, a literal fulfillment. For one day, a literal virgin will conceive in a miraculous way, and the child will literally be God with us. Now, we don't know that. We don't understand that. That's what's embedded in these verses until the Apostle Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he looks at the situation, and God whispers these words to him, and he tells us this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we need to understand is even though Ahaz wasn't aware of it, God had always had this secondary and complete fulfillment in mind for the words that Isaiah spoke to him, a literal virgin birth. On human level, a, a virgin conception doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. It goes against everything that we think we know about reality. But it only goes against everything we think we know about reality when you leave aside the power of God, when you write Him out of the equation, just like Ahaz was doing back in the Old Testament. When you write the power of God out of the equation, certainly it's an impossibility. But when you put the power of God in the equation, you find nothing is impossible for God. And there is a miraculous entrance of a miraculous person. These words, this prophecy, always pointed to a Savior, God with us. And that brings us over to John chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there. When we answer the question, therefore, who will he be? This one who was long predicted. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, he describes him to us. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Apostle John is using the phrase, the Word, in Greek, logos, identifying Jesus Christ by that title. He tells us that He existed from the very beginning. It could be translated, at the starting point, the Word already was. Before time began, God the Son existed. God exists eternally, not bound by time. And then John says, and the Word was with God. In other words, he describes for us the fact that God in His nature has always existed in a relationship, God the Son with God the Father. Now, we learn over the sweep of the Bible that there's a third person in the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. But here, these two are, are focused on God the Son called the Word in a relationship with God the Father. He was with God. But just in case you think that means He's less than God and not God Himself, John clears it up quickly in the end of verse 1, and the Word was God. This is what John wants you to believe. 
that the one who came to us on a mission of rescue was nothing less than the incarnate God the Son, who He calls the Word. And He has very good reason for using that title to describe Jesus Christ. Because both in His Hebrew uh, readers and in the culture of His Greek readers, they already had that phrase as a part of their philosophy. In Gentile philosophy, the, the phrase, the logos, was the term they used for what they, they called the ultimate reason behind all that is. You might call it the organizing principle. In the Greek mind, they use the word logos to describe the organizing principle that brings everything to reality. You might say it's the Greek's version of the higher power. That's what they had in mind. Now, John comes along and says to the Greek readers, I'm telling you about who the true higher power is. And I'm telling you that it's not a vague idea or an existential concept. It is a person, a divine person, who loves you enough to come for you. Now, to the Jew, they also had the, the use of the term logos. It was a way that the, the, the Greek-speaking Jew would refer to the wisdom of God in its active power. So in both cultures, there's this idea using this phrase, logos, of a power beyond ourselves of God. And then, of course, there's just the common everyday meaning of the word, word. But it's, it's a communication. It's the unit of communication. John uses that to describe this is God's final and best communication of Himself to us. This is the Word made flesh. What I want you to see is as the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these words, all of the depth of this meaning was there. It was all present in what he's writing down. And so these, both of these cultures would be impacted by these words describing God the Son. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this. In Romans chapter 10, he says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we've heard that verse and verses like it so many times that I think sometimes the significance goes away. But the statement, Jesus is Lord, is the foundational Christian idea. Paul is declaring here that he believes Jesus is Lord. But what we need to understand is years earlier in his life, this is exactly the phrase that caused him to persecute the Christians. Here's why. By the time Paul was alive, for centuries the Jews had been using a Greek version of what we call the Old Testament. And they had been, that was their everyday uh, scriptures that they used. Paul was a Jewish scholar. He was fluent in Greek. And he understands that the Jews, out of reverence, would never write or speak the true name of God that God revealed to Moses. They would never use that in their literature or in their speech or in their translation of Scriptures. What the Jews did as they translated the Old Testament into Greek is when they came upon the holy name of God, the true name of the one true God, they substituted a different word. And the word that they substituted in Greek was Lord. So when Paul says Jesus is Lord, He's not being just polite. He's saying, I now believe the very idea I used to persecute. 
I believe that Jesus is equal to God the Father. I believe that He is the one true God. Now, here's what I want you to see. That means that God the Father is like Jesus, and Jesus is like God the Father. Why is that important? Because of the category mistake that we often make in our thinking. Maybe you've done this. Have you ever thought God the Father is the mean one and Jesus is the nice one? Ever thought, you know, God the Father is all about condemning, but Jesus is about saving. God the Father is about law. Jesus is about grace. But we've got to turn that around. Because all the love, all the self-sacrifice, all the blessing, all the healing, all the hope we find in Jesus, we also find in the Father. Jesus shows us what the Father is like. He is the Word made flesh. God the Father is the father of the prodigal who runs out to meet the returning son. He's the father of the world who is described this way in John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Jesus shows us that God the Father is all about salvation He's all about hope and the promise of eternity. He tells us that He's willing to take the price of our salvation on Himself. Jesus perfectly communicates the Father to us. Here's what happened, John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is Christianity in a nutshell. God the Son came on a rescue mission for us. So how do we respond? Tragically, this is the rest of the story. John tells us that, of course, some believed and some followed, but for the most part, Jesus was unrecognized and unreceived. He arrived on the planet that owed its very existence to Him, but when He got here, we didn't want Him. This is the great failure of humanity, not to recognize God among us. Not only did we not recognize Him, but the little bit that we did see, we rejected. Verse 11, He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. And that's the complete failure. So this past week, Thinking about this, I asked myself, how could that happen? How could it be that we miss the very presence of God among us? We owe everything we are and all that is to Him, yes, yet we didn't recognize Him. And I think I found the answer to that in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here's my point. We miss Jesus every time when it's the wisdom of man that sets the standards for our belief. We miss Jesus every time when we sit in judgment and when we say, look, this is the kind of God I'm willing to follow. This is the kind of truth I'm willing to believe. And soon we fashion our idea of God after our own image, and God turns out to be just a very large version of ourselves. 
See, the factors that cause Jesus to be missed in his century are the same things that are causing people to miss his activity today. It's a trap of spiritual pride saying, I'm going to determine my own truth, and it's exactly what Ahaz was doing. And so, he missed the promise of God. Think with me about this. Imagine for a moment that you have a child who's 18 years old. As an expression of your love, you buy him a car, and tragically he gets into a a car accident and slips into a coma. And you pray by his bedside day after day that he would come out of that coma and regain consciousness. And then one day his eyes flutter open and you rejoice to see he seems to be in perfect health. He's making a full recovery except for this. He has no memory of your love. He has no memory of you. Even though you brought this child into the world, he has no idea who you are. You show him pictures, you read him letters, but it doesn't seem to be making a difference. He's at a crossroads and and so are you. He may choose to believe what you're saying and love you back, or he may walk out of your life forever. That's exactly how God feels about us. He loves us first. He comes first. But in our pride, we suffer from what I'll label spiritual amnesia. But when we believe and we trust Him and we simply say yes to His offer, that amnesia falls away. Look at verse 12. Yet to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's how the spiritual amnesia is washed away. That's how we receive the gift, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a simple yes. And it's a yes that says, I'm going to trust your plan better than my plan. I'm going to trust who you say you are more than who I want you to be. Do not give in to this temptation of trying to make Jesus into something you think He should be, a little more like a mystic or a little more like a businessman, a little less miraculous, a little less strict. Don't try to take off the rough edges to eject the call to obedience, but rather recognize, take Him as He is and be humble before Him as a child. And what will happen is you will find all of the mercy, all of the hope, and all of the truth that's available from the heart of God flows to you. That is what Ahaz missed, but what we can have in Jesus, His love. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You love us so much. Thank You that You care for us. It's nothing we earn. It's nothing that we do. We can never make you love us more, and you will never love us less. Lord, it is that love we rejoice in, and that's what we want to sing and praise and and glorify you regarding this Christmas. Thank you for your love, and thank you for your rescue. We love you. We rejoice in you. In your name we pray. Amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand together as we sing.
separate ways in just a moment, but maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, I need prayer. There's something in my life, a decision I'm facing, an issue that I'm dealing with, a question that I have, and only prayer will solve it. In a moment, we have our prayer counselors by the organ and the prayer table. 
Some people will be leaving, but you can slip forward. And you can lay that burden down in prayer. They will wait for you and they will pray for you. And maybe it is to be introduced to this Lord and Savior we're talking about for the very first time. They would love to introduce you to the Savior that they know. But first, let's all pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love. Thank you that all of this is about love. It's not about judgment or persecution. It's all because you love us so much. Help us as we leave this place to take that message of love with us and to communicate in what we say and what we do that we are the agents of love in this world. And we'll give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.